ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. All right, today I'm talking with Carrie Hirschberger of She Hunts Washington. We get to chat about her impact in not just hunting, but in all the many hats she wears in her outdoor community. All right, guys, I've got Carrie Hirschberger with us tonight. Um, we are talking with her. Her Instagram handle is She Hunts Washington, and I'm super excited to get to talk to you tonight, Carrie. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, tell us tell us just a little bit about who you are and how you were first inspired into the outdoors. Because, you know, as hunters, we're not just hunters. We are actually in the outdoors more than I think a whole lot of people out there. That is true. And I feel very strongly on that fact as well. Well, uh, I'd probably be better, I'd do better at counting the years that I don't remember being <laughs> an active participant in the outdoors uh-huh. uh, because there are so few. Yeah. Um, my mother was a school employee, and so her and a lot of her friends that she had with the schools had summers off. So we disappeared almost all summer long until I was old enough to have a job. So as I call them lovingly, my unemployed years, uh, <laughs> I I spent just being a kid catching snakes, uh, covering myself in clay deposits that naturally formed along the rivers to keep the, the flies and bugs off of us and just being wild children. And it was a wonderful, wonderful um, start to my outdoor career, I suppose. And, uh, my, my parents had always in my, in my mind, they'd always hunted. They, they started in their thirties together, but, um, for my recollection, they had always hunted and, um, it was such a celebration when they brought home meat 
and cut it up. A whole bunch of friends would come over, whether it was just a single animal or whether multiple people were fortunate enough to harvest things. And so every fall we had folks stringing deer in the backyard and in the hanging tree and then um, going right into cutting meat in the garage. And it was just such a social event and such a celebrated thing um, and such a special thing, always knowing where our feed, food came from. I, I don't have a time in my life that I didn't know that what I was eating was the, the deer that either I harvested or a family member did. That's, uh, that's kind of how we have felt in the past three years, a little bit longer than three years. And it's a great feeling. It is an excellent feeling actually. It is being able to have that connection to the outdoors in such a tangible way to participate in that circle and really be able to be very selective and, and, honor um where your table fair comes from is just a huge passion of mine and and my family's especially um growing up with having a mother that hunts and having that feminine side of that aspect it was just um it was really special to me and it, it and I take a lot of pride in in being able to put things on the my dinner plate whether it's uh something that I hunted uh that at one point or another was a a living, breathing life or whether it's something that I've picked from, from the forest. It's um, a really positive thing for me. I love that. Um, hearing that your mom kind of has been your inspiration in that, especially in hunting, you know, going back to that time, like you said, when you got started where it's hard to even remember them if they ever did not hunt. Um, it's a, it's a sweet thing to be able to see because I'm on the other end of it. I would be your mom, like in yes. in teaching my kids that I'm a first generation hunter and being able to pass that on to my daughter and my son. Um, it's really great to hear your perspective of it because I'm like, that's how my kids would feel. Yes, it's so it's so nice, and that's one of the things that I continue to push as a message is. Even if you didn't hunt when you're a kid, especially if you're raising children, being able to provide them that. Um, I mean, it's it's been so impactful to me to have parents that that took me out. And it was so impactful to have both that masculine and feminine viewpoint and, and touching that. I mean, my my father is a person that would never truly get uh, emotional or, or show emotions at the uh um, when he harvested an animal, but my mom would be the person that if you found her in the woods after she harvested an animal, she'd have her hand on it. She might even be, uh, petting the side of it and she'd be saying thank you for its sacrifice. And, um, it taught me very quickly that it was okay to feel a little bit of remorse, um, yep. at, at the harvest of an animal and expressing that in your own way, because truly I feel if you don't, have that remorse or respect for the animal. I think the day I don't have that is the day that I'll stop hunting. I, uh, I read a post that you had about somebody who said, I'm ready for hunting. And you said, why? <laughs> why do you think now you're ready for hunting? And your response was pretty dead on um, to his response. I don't know if you want to share that or. Um, sure. So I had a friend in high school that knew that I, I had grown up hunting. It's been something that I've never, I've certainly never hidden and it's genuinely a source of happiness and pride for me. So it's, it's not something that 
if you know me for too long, you know that I identify as a hunter, I suppose. So this person came up to me and said that he, he was ready to hunt. And I asked why. And he said, well, I went up into the mountains and I shot a mountain bluebird and I didn't feel bad about it. So uh, I know I'm ready. Uh, and I told him that that was the exact uh, exact opposite of ready to me. Yeah. That truly, if, if you don't feel some kind of remorse and respect for your prey, um, you have no business in the woods hunting. And um, I think genuinely that's what I appreciate most about the hunting community is the people that do it resoundingly respect the wildlife and respect the resource and understand that to to nourish your body with that meat means that you have uh, taken that life. And it's something that generally I'd say this population of person um, doesn't take lightly. And I, I really feel quite akin. I feel kindred spirits uh, all around me when I'm around hunters, because I know that truly that's the, the effect for most people. Yeah. I, uh, uh, recently read, oh, who was it that posted? Um, was it Brit? Um, anyways, they they were talking about um, what makes us human. Does hunting make us human? And I, I kept thinking about it over and over and over. Um, no, I think that hunting makes us like every other predator out there. Hunting mm-hmm. ethically makes us a good human. Um, yes. And there's a difference. And and I think that our hunting community does has done a really good job recently, especially, of um, creating an ethical side to it that we talk about more often. And yet we will still find those people every now and then that really hurt the name and it's hard to stomach. Yes, it is. I think, I think a lot of those people that hurt the name of hunting genuinely for the, for the most part, there are those extreme outliers, but most people, it just takes one thoughtless moment to post something or post a picture that, that you found pride in that some other people may find unappealing or complete an entirely different narrative for. Mm -hmm. Um, And so genuinely, I feel really, I feel really positive and I look forward to opening my social media and seeing all of the people that I follow in regards to the hunting community, because I know for the most part, people think a lot about what they share because they want to ensure that the narrative that they're putting forward is, is a, is a good thing. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And it just takes one photo out of context, unfortunately, to completely wipe away a hundred positive messages that you've had and and potentially people that you've reached that, that you've inspired. Um, And so I, um, it's a social media has been really wonderful and also uh, really challenging, I think, to to the hunting community as a whole, but overall I'm pretty proud of the messages that are being put out. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Um, now you wear a couple different hats. Um, you actually wear a lot of hats. Um, you are a hunter, you're an outdoors, an outdoors woman. You are a firefighter. Um, yes. Yes. Tell us a little bit about <laughs> that. Cause that's, um, I grew up with, uh, my grandfather was uh, the chief 
um, of the firehouse and he was also the chef of the firehouse. So firefighters have a true big spot in my heart. And so when I was looking all over your stuff and kind of learning a little bit more about you, I was like, yes, I love this woman. Um, (laughs) So tell me a little bit about that. Well, I am a wildland firefighter, which is a little bit different than the structure side. Although sometimes we overlap, we overlap more than we ever have before, truly. Um, But I am a younger sister. So my older sister, my father had pushed us towards jobs with the forest service when we turned 18, which is the minimum age that they require to be able to work most of their positions. Mm -hmm. So I got to watch my sister join the forest service on a trail crew and she loved it. And I knew I would love it too. And she encouraged me to apply, but being the little sister that always had to divert and create (laughs) her own path, I found fire and, uh, uh, found that I enjoyed, uh, both, playing with fire and suppressing fire. So it was a great way to pay my way through college. Mm -hmm. I did that on hand crews and engines. And somewhere through my college path, I watched somebody do what we call a proficiency repel, which uh, is a practice repel. It's, It's not an operational one. And I pointed up at the helicopter and I said, what is that and how do I do it? And my boss at the time said, well, Carrie, we don't quite have, uh, the opportunity or the luxury around here to get you helicopter crew member assignments very frequently. So if you really want to do that, I'd suggest going elsewhere to get some training and, um, and work on a few more qualifications. And I think you'd be ready to do that. So, uh, just as I graduated from college, I worked hard and, um, made it out in three years. I was a good, eligible applicant for a rappel crew. So I joined a rappel crew, which is a ton of fun. And if anybody has any questions or wants to know how to get into wildland fire, please message me. I, we need good people. We truly need people that are passionate about the outdoors. I'd love to get you hooked up with a position. Um, but rappellers get to uh, go to really beautiful areas that are very remote with potentially no landing sites and your job is to fight a fire that nobody ever hears about because you Mm. keep it small. So you repel, it used to be 250 feet down the line. Now they have 350 foot ropes. They do it a little bit different. Now I can say back in my day, like my person, (laughs) but um, back in my day, we were only doing a 250 feet and you could get inserted with potentially one other person into a remote wilderness fire. And it was your job to put it out and uh, pack all the gear out when you're done and get picked up at a road someplace. So it was a wonderful, um, we jokingly call them government sponsored camp camping trips. Of course we're working <laughs> while we're doing it, but yeah. it was a fantastic way to see, um, I mean, I've, I've repelled in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, it's a really special way to get to see a huge part of the country in places that you would otherwise never have chosen to go on your own. Wow. Um, it was really, really fun. Yeah. But now. And after, after I did that, um, through my career uh, with the Forest Service, which this is my 15th season, um, 
unfortunately, it's a pretty small community of wildland firefighters. And if you've been at it for a while, um, you've either most likely been involved in a serious incident or um, know somebody that has. And unfortunately, I am on both ends of that spectrum at this mm-hmm. point. And so through through some really poor outcomes um, that I've been around and part of in the Forest Service, it became a passion of mine to make sure that I was certified as an EMT to be able to help my brothers and sisters when, mm-hmm. when they need assistance. And so while I was repelling, I got uh, certified as an EM- EMT and throughout the process with the Forest Service, with its growing firefighting force and understanding that we need to support people in more remote situations because we're putting them there all the time. Um, the, uh, short haul program for the Forest Service was opened up. And after a few years of the program's existence, I applied and was accepted. And so short haul, uh, the short haul module does everything else a regular hell attack crew does. You initial attack fires, you work on large project fires, the pilots do bucket operations, we sling cargo in, we transport people, all of that kind of stuff. But they have one really important additional duty. And that's when somebody gets catastrophically injured or critically ill, we have the capability of uh, hooking ourselves up 250 feet below the helicopter. And they can fly us into this remote location where this person is if there's no landing site. They drop us off. The helicopter does some circles while we do patient triage and package them. We call the helicopter back, um, hook up the line to ourselves and the patient and fly back to a location that we can um, either receive either hopefully an ambulance is waiting and and we immediately deliver them there or we can land the aircraft and then put them internal and uh, fly them someplace uh, where they can get to the best care possible. That's awesome. (laughs) That's it's kind of like the best of it's kind of like you're the land coast guard um, <laughs> plus life flight plus firefighting. Like it's all in one. That's a, it's a lot of hats in one moment as well. It is. And it's, it's really nice. And it's also scary because it, it is only a program that's supported to the EMT basic level and potentially the type of person that you would be caring for is, is somebody that's outside of your scope of practice mm-hmm. that truly the best care that they need is that is advanced care as you can. So I know a lot of people that I work with don't genuinely like the term, but um, I'm pretty passionate that generally we're hot potato medicine. We're mm-hmm. trying to get that person off to that next level of care as quickly as we can because yep. that's what they deserve. They deserve the best level of care and me getting them to that is the most important thing. So it's, it's a lot of responsibility and not one that any of our folks take lightly. Um, a few of the programs have yet to do, there's, uh, seven programs, six programs nationally. Um, and a few of them have yet to do operational short hauls because it's such a new program, but I liken it to a seatbelt. You don't need it until you really need it. So it's nice to have the capacity to be able to do that. 100%. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, I love that. Throughout your journey in fighting fires, it has also coincided with your outdoor passion. Um, it's almost like it runs parallel. 
it has. It's been it's been really really neat. I've been so fortunate to have the career that I've had so far and and continue to have and will have. Um, sometimes it sometimes it's been fairly wearing in the sense that an average season for some of those programs is anywhere between eight hundred and twelve hundred hours of overtime. <laughs> so you're gone. You're gone a lot. Yeah. I think my busiest summer, I between May and October, I spent six days at home. Um, so I've been pretty excited. This year was a new year for me. I've transitioned to a more science-based side of fire and I've, um, I accepted a position as a fuels technician. So myself and my supervisor are in charge of administering a prescribed burn program for the district that I'm on, which is a pretty complex, fairly high visited uh, district within the, the forest. Seattle's just right over the, the crest from us. So mm-hmm. um, we're in the public eye a lot. So it's, it's really nice to be able to put some good fire back on the ground and continue to give back to the ecosystem and have a little bit better work-life balance and still get to do what I love. So it's been fun. That's great. Being able to put all your worlds together and still have the time um, for yourself is a good thing. It's a really good thing. Um, This summer has been intoxicating. This was my first in 15 years and I almost got drunk on it. I went halibut fishing, picked huckleberries, did things that normal people do in the summer, (laughs) got a tan someplace other than my hands. That's great. (laughs) Makes a difference. Uh, It makes a difference to be able to have that downtime in the place that you love, not just work in the place that you love. Truly. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, so you also have another hat. You have volunteered time with Noah, right? I am fortunate enough that it's not uh, volunteer time in my off season because fire doesn't burn in the snow. Mm-hmm. I work in uh, in Seattle um, as a contract scientist for a marine mammal scientist for NOAA. Mm-hmm. And I joke because I, I don't want you to have to bleep this out. So I won't uh, I won't use a curse word. But generally, I joke that I have the poopiest job at NOAA. And I think you can insert the word that would otherwise be there. Yes. Because uh, I do I do a lot. Uh, among other things, I get to do some really amazing field work for them. But one of my major job duties is um, to to facilitate the. Uh, food habit study, mm-hmm. which means my coworkers, while I'm fighting fires all summer long, are collecting sea lion scats. Yep. And they come in little paint strainer bags and they throw them in the, a washing machine that's just for that. Because, of course, you'd never want to put anything in there again after that. Yep. And uh, <laughs> um, I, I get these, these scats that have gone through the washing machine and I dissect them and um, sort fish bones and otoliths and beaks and... Um, and lenses and, and parts of all the creature beasts that uh, uh, these sea lions have been eating. So it's kind of, it, it, it's not really as gross as it sounds, because like I said, most of the actual fecal matter is taken out by that point. Right. But little eight-year-old me is so excited that this is my job now. I'm pretty <laughs> sure it would have been eight-year-old <laughs> me's dream to be able to dissect those and see all of the creature parts yes uh, I am not uh I think one of my kids favorite things 
finding here in Tennessee was a river otter latrine site. And oh, yeah. they will talk about it to this day. And it's been a couple of years since we came across it, but they will talk about it 100% <laughs> of the time. They would absolutely go crazy hearing about your job right now. <laughs> it is really neat. I, I uh, fill up vials with different uh, fish bones and otoliths and some I can identify at this point, but there's a gentleman there that's just a savant. And when he retires, it'll be the most devastating thing nationally for science in regards to food habits in in the country because you can give him any bone on the planet and even if it's a fairly uh like fairly rare species of fish or something he knows exactly what it is it's it's amazing um and so it's really fun to get his reports back of what those animals had been eating and see just the divergence in uh in in food sometimes even even uh, the prey becoming the predator in some circumstances mm-hmm. because there's mako shark teeth. So when makos are really small, sometimes a sea lion will grab one of those. But just just cool things. It's neat. It is the really neat. work is much more glamorous and much more um, <laughs> Instagram worthy, though. I know. I think I saw you had a great injury one time from a sea lion. I am pretty proud of the fact that on my concealed weapons permit application <laughs> they ask about scars and on my left hand on my left forearm I have a pretty impressive bite uh, by a very rare animal yeah it was a Guadalupe fur seal California sea lion hybrid so it was a very specific animal that we were targeting to be able to take uh, hair samples and blood samples from to mm-hmm. and, and tag so that they could monitor and track it over its life. And unfortunately, um, it's it, it's so funny because in the photo that I have with it, it's smiling. It looks quite charming, but I'll tell you that its teeth weren't quite as charming <laughs> as its smile was. I bet not. <laughs> I bet nobody else had a story like that. <laughs> uh, you'd be surprised with the with the folks that work there. It's funny because the the first field season I worked with them, the before we went out and caught caught animals for study, um, they they told me they said rule number one: don't get bit. Rule number two: don't get bit. <laughs> and so, of course, on my last day there, uh, I had a. a I'll call it for the most part a successful near miss, but I got uh, the flesh of my pinky got bit and it was pretty, you know, it's, there's water. And so it looks worse than it always is. But I kind of felt like the little kid that like drew on the wall or did something that they knew was wrong, but they had to fess up to it to their parents. I was holding my glove really tight. and I was like, ah, I got bit and uh, everybody kind of joked. They're like, finally, we all get bit. It's not that big of a deal. So it, uh, mo- they said it was, since it was a cup bite, it didn't count. Ah. Um, but most people there have some kind of scar from, from the encounters with the animal. It's just, uh, I guess, a hazard of the job. The stories that can be told through scars. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're battle wounds. There's something of a trophy. It's uh um, I don't know. I've, I've talked to a couple of people who are embarrassed by their scars and, and I go, no, those are badges of honor. Those are, those tell a story. You wouldn't be who you are without those. 
Yes, I agree. Initially, I was genuinely hoping that it wouldn't scar, but now it's quite a source of joy and humor for me. So Mm -hmm. I can imagine how it would evolve for other people as well. Yep. Okay, so do you mainly hunt in Washington State or have you gone to multiple places? I... Uh, I localize mostly to Washington. Mm -hmm. I have uh, branched out over the last, for nine years, I've gone over to Idaho and I hunt in the backcountry of Idaho for mule deer. And last year um, was the first time that I had a a different species tag in my pocket, aside from um, always carrying a a wolf tag with me. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, last year I had an elk tag over there also, which oh, yes. was awesome. And <laughs> we definitely got very, very close to filling that and um, was one of the first times that I've genuinely had to um, had to kind of uh, confront what some people or what society kind of pushes towards you um, as a failure. But Mm. to me, that hunt was still so special. And uh, I literally gave it everything I had. We were in there for 12 days. Um, My friend harvested his deer. It was just my elk tag left that that was all we were hunting for. We were kind of pushing the last of the days. I made this monster 16-mile from from our spike camp da- back to base camp up to this other location um we called it operation slingshot because the guys were nice enough to take down spike camp um because it was kind of our last hail mary to try to get me up this other mountain that we had seen animals on about a week earlier um it took <laughs> took me about uh, 10 of those miles to be able to get to a position where i could glass the basin and i could see the elk they were just at the very, very head of the basin and intermittent snow flurries every 30 minutes. It was whiteout conditions you couldn't see. And then it would open up to blue skies. And it did that for my entire stock. And I knew I had to move fast, fast enough that I couldn't take my full pack even with me. So I GPS my pack and with our in reaches, I, I told, um, the fellas where the pack was and confirmed with them that operation slingshot was a go (laughs) that I was, uh, I was out after it. So, um, made this huge epic, epic stock with awesome support crew with my friend, Jeff and my boyfriend, Derek. Um, they got all the stuff back to base camp and then packed what we call ultra spike, which is kind of an emergency. You're going to have to stay on the hill. Tough luck. Right. uh, Right. Delter and all of that gear that goes with it they packed that up to where I was able to see the elk from and watched me finish this epic stock through those whiteout conditions. And I got into a position about 150 yards above three bulls when another huge whiteout hit with about 35 mile an hour winds. Oh. And I was crouched below this rock for 30 minutes. And when I stood up to look at the elk and when it cleared out for where the boys were watching me from, there were no elk and they had about a, a mile and a half either direction from their vantage point that they could see. And there was no elk in the basin. So those things ghosted me the hardest I've ever been. Ghosted. Yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah, they did. And, uh, they, they won, they, they won that, that trip. So, uh, but it was just, 
it was so much fun, but it was almost, it was, it was to, to the point of earnest ex- exhaustion. We, um, the day that we flew out, it's kind of tradition for us to stop at this burger place and get burgers and fries. And I told them that I just couldn't do it. I was feeling a little ill. And, um, so I slept in the trek while they went in and Derek, not understanding anybody not wanting to have food because he's so food centric, <laughs> uh, was kind enough to bring me out a burger and fries and even just the smell of it. I, You're um, done. I, I gave, I gave the rest of what I had in my stomach up and, pretty much stayed curled in the ball at a ball for the whole ride home, which was pretty miserable at the time, but part of the, part of the adventure, I guess, and, um, overcoming all of all sorts of adversities. So overall a pretty cherished memory, even though we came back a a little lighter than we had hoped. Yeah. Those, there's no such thing as a failure on a hunt. It's just learned experience. 100%. There's, there's no, anybody that uses the word failure, especially when you are stock hunting, I, yes, you can't use that word because failure would be not growing from that moment. I agree. And there's a lot of people and failure isn't the word that's coined. Most people, people are, uh, the term I guess is like people say that they had a successful hunt. And to me, it's a culmination of the memories and the experiences and coming home, coming home with, uh, with full meat bags or whatever you have with you is, Mm -hmm. is a part of that journey, but it should never be the center of that journey. Cause if it is, then you end up finding a lot of hollow experiences and otherwise absolutely stunning locations. Exactly. We've, I think Guy and I have talked and a couple of other people have talked and even though I've never been on a, a Western hunt, um, I can't imagine not living within each moment. You know what I mean? Because if you don't live in those moments, then you miss the little things. You miss um, the sun coming up. You miss the dew on the trees and on the leaves. You miss the smell um, of being in the forest. And it smells sweet. It's not, I mean, unless you're coming up on scat or a skunk or something dead. (laughs) um, Yes. Especially in the morning, it just smells sweet. And if your focus is mainly and only on getting an animal, um, you miss those moments. Yes. And I, I've never been so happy to have not, not to have not gotten an animal, but in a moment of a, of a stock that didn't end in me pulling the trigger, I'd never been so at peace and so happy as when I started walking down the hill that day. The sun was starting to set and the colors were just these amazing, vivid pastels after all of those storms came through. Mm -hmm. And I was at the top of the mountain. I was walking in hip deep snow. And as I got down to where the the guys were, I was more in uh, shin high snow. But it was just colored this awesome peach color from how the sun was reflecting on everything as it Mm -hmm. was going down. It was just such a, uh, you know, such a special moment that you can't put value on. No, that, you can't. That if you, if you are so wrapped up in the disappointment of not notching that tag, you, those moments wouldn't be as poignant. They wouldn't be something that were remembered, even though you are fortunate enough to live it. Yep. I agree. I agree. Now you said, and I've read that mule deer 
is probably one of your favorite animals to hunt. Is that still that way or has elk kind of hinted into that now? Elk are fun and they're mesmerizing for me because I don't understand them quite as much as I do mule deer, Mm -hmm. but mule deer and I speak the same language. (laughs) There you Um, go. (laughs) So, so it's, uh, it's, it's like, uh, yeah, they're, they're just really two uncomparable things, but Mm -hmm. I've spent my life hunting mule deer. My first, well, my first deer was a whitetail, but when I was seven, but eight on, um, and I was lucky enough to harvest a deer from eight to 18. And there are a few years in college that I was unsuccessful, but I've, I've harvested a mule deer almost every year of my life. And, um, in my twenties, I started going a lot more into the back country mule deer hunting just to try to get some breathing room because, um, hunting is popular and that's great. But it, uh, to me, I like hunting, the animal for what the animal wants to do, not for where the animal is trying to go to escape the other person that's also hunting the animal. Yeah. So finding an area free of pressure is more important to me than finding the biggest deer on the mountain, I guess. But yeah. luckily the biggest deer on the mountain generally like areas where there's low pressure. So um, we're fortunate enough to harvest some very beautiful animals in public land general seasons here in Washington. But um, generally we're not passing up legal animals either. It's just that the types of critters that live in those environments are, um, are, are really beautiful animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Surprisingly beautiful. It, it, I'm, when I see pictures, because we, we have whitetail here, we have elk in East Tennessee. Um, I think they give six tags away a year. Um, and and so it's very, it, it's very hard to get that. It's a drawing. It's a lottery. Um, yes. And so whitetail is all I've ever seen. Um, but the pictures of mule deer, it's, man, it's tempting to, to see you guys getting out there and stalking and learning. And because you've had all of these years, like you said, you speak th- the same language. Yes. Yeah. So it's um, you have to come hunt mule deer <laughs> at some point in your hunting career. It, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of contention between people that hunt whitetail and people that hunt mule deer. And people say whitetail taste better. Um, other people say, well, the bargain on the mule deer is you get more for it. Truly, I don't think that. I think it's truly a lot about the preparation and what you do with the animal from the time that you kill it to the time you cook it. Yes. Um, I think that you can make both taste quite wonderful and flavorful. And my dad used to even uh, complain about me shooting bucks because generally he tries to get doe tags and Uh he shoots a doe and he thinks that doe are more tender than bucks. Then I did a blind tasting for my Idaho mule deer buck that was, eight and a half years old and his nice wheat field fed dough and he picked the wrong one for what was going to be the dough. Sorry to out you on a podcast, dad, but still love you. That's so, great. But, but taste wise, uh, you know, yeah, I guess tentatively any animal, depending on its diet is going to taste different in its health, but truly they're just they live in such different places, especially if you're, you're doing high country mule deer, getting back into some of those basins that are 6,000, 7,000 feet elevation and 
glassing at first light and, you know, last light waiting for those big ones to stand up out of the, out of the big, uh, the big hillsides and watching them, uh, watching them fight in the rut over, over their does. It's a, it's a different experience than whitetail. I won't say it's better. Um, no, it's just, but it's different. just different. Yeah. They, I, I've had the privilege of sitting and watching two whitetail bucks fight. Um, the cool. sound just clanging against each other. It was a great experience. But like you said, seeing each animal is different and each animal has its own special thing. And that's also taking that moment and noticing those things so that you can say, you know, one's not better than the other. They're just different. You can't compare them. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I I think it's so fascinating. Whitetail, you, you'd never... Well, I won't say you'd never, because you can't speak in absolutes of nature because they surprise you all the time. True. But generally, you're not you're not grunting or or rattling in a mule deer, right? So to me, the fact that you can do that with a whitetail is an incredibly enchanting notion. I um, that I haven't experienced. Yep, yep. It's I think I've I have I've never used antlers to bring a deer in, but I have grunted and. And it kind of stops them and brings them back just a little bit during the rut. Um, And it's, I don't, I can't compare it to calling in an elk. I can't compare it to anything else because I've never done anything else. But to have one respond to you is like, yes, I have one. Um, (laughs) It's a, it's a great feeling. (laughs) It really is. is cool. Mm -hmm. So it would be, I, I've got, I've got my bucket list. It's, uh, it's on there and mule deer's on there. Um, definitely. So one day, maybe one day. Um, nice. But I've loved, I, I loved reading your post about mule deer. Um, and I love how you say it's, <laughs> we speak the same language. It's uh, when you spent that much time with them, you can't help that, uh, that mm-hmm. to happen. So would you say one of your favorite hunts would be with a mule deer or would you say one of your favorite hunts of all time um, would be with something else? Gosh, you know, that's just so hard because there's so many (laughs) moments of defying the odds and overcoming adversity in Mm -hmm. a lot of different species that I hunt. Uh, I mean, there's so many different factors, the time with the family, Mm -hmm. um, just absolutely feeling like you earned it. <laughs> no kidding. Um, there, I think for mule deer, it would be really hard for me to pull out one moment in particular. I mean, getting to take my mom up on a high country hunt where we didn't even pull the trigger. We just ended up in the most amazing lightning storm I've ever been in, let alone on top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, to... Uh, spending a couple weeks with her in the general season later and actually getting it done and being able to hike an animal out with her to the harvest moon where I looked back at her and said, men, we don't need no stinking men. (laughs) And uh, just absolutely, absolutely uh, rocked getting that. We boned out the animal um, and got it back to the vehicle all, all by ourselves that night and just had such a wonderful time with her doing that to um one of my first backcountry hunts when I got 
prey tested by wolves and got chased out of the area that I initially wanted to hunt and hiked into a different area and found another animal that landed me um, an article later uh, writing about it in Eastman's hunting journal. There's a lot of really cool special moments, I guess. That mm-hmm. I read a little I've, bit about that article. Hunting. I was going to ask you about it. Um, being stalked, I can't, um, there, there are a lot of things that can happen on a hunt. And I think in public land and in places that you don't really have a whole lot of control over, um, there are some scary situations that you can get yourself into. It's true. And one thing when people ask me for different hunts, especially folks that already have at least some of the basic gear, when they ask me what to bring in specific areas, my suggestion to them is always um, pack what you think you need for the worst case scenario, because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of um, unique and interesting moments that you could potentially get yourself into out there. That was something that was just so out of right field. Um, There wasn't even a wolf pack that was confirmed anywhere in in the neighborhood. Um, I hadn't brought a pistol with me because my ex had talked me out of it. He said, anything you're going to want to shoot, you can shoot with your long rifle. Don't bring your heavy old revolver with you. And Uh. so I slammed it on the kitchen counter and walked out and went on that hunt. And 28 hours later, I was really wishing I had that pistol because maybe my choice would have been different. I mean, the outcome ended up the best outcome for those wolves and I survived. But what about the next person that goes into that area that's hiking that doesn't necessarily have the same skill sets or or patience that I do? Did I do them a service? And I I think about that frequently too. So um, it was a really, really haunting experience. And overall, it ended up being a two-hour standoff with those animals, getting all of my stuff packed up, having them come at me uh, one at a time. They were so close that I couldn't even have thought to try to shoot them um, aiming through the scope. I was holding it on my, I would have hit, had to hip shoot them at that point. They were so close. So it was, um, it was a unique experience for sure. And I made it out of there luckily and, and, and they did too. So I didn't have to be the subject to a lot of uh, scrutiny or investigation. I didn't leak that story initially in the first place. Somebody else told the, local newspaper about it and even the ridicule I got from complete strangers for how I acted when uh when the animals survived the encounter was pretty pretty intense it was interesting reading some of the comments that people had on um on that article in general so it's some of those it's a fun journey <laughs> right some of those um I, this past year, I had an article written um, written up about a, a buck that I saw um, last November, and I, again, like you, the animal came out free and clear. Um, I did not shoot. I did not plan on shooting, and the response that I got um, it was a mixed bag from hunters and non-hunters, and... Uh, it kind of gave me a little bit of a heads up on, like you said, being very careful with how I post things, with with being very careful on how I tell stories 
um, to be respectful of people who might not understand um, where we're coming from. And I don't know, every once in a while, it's good to be reminded of that so that we don't become complacent in in who we are and how we do things. Um, but yeah, I feel you on that one. Sometimes you just have to skip over those comments. Um, yes, it's, it's not, true. It's not easy, but it's definitely not going to hurt you to skip over them. Yeah. My, uh, one of my coworkers, um, one of my old coworkers used to say, respect the perspective. Mm -hmm. And even if others don't practice that, I, I certainly find myself inclined to, to try to do that because, um, judging something off of a very small blurb without having a lot of the information, um, is not something that I would want somebody to do for me and having experienced some of that. I, I genuinely try to live by, by that rule when I can to respect the perspective. Yep. I agree. I agree. You have to kind of prep for if somebody were going to get the first five words of what you were about to say and nothing else, what would they see? How would they respond? Mm -hmm. What would their perspective be? Um, and I think that a lot of people would think, well, it's sad that we have to think that way, but I would want others to think that way for me um, in respecting me. And that's kind of the golden rule. Let's treat everybody like you would like to be treated. Um, and so I think if we hunters are going to try to make a good name for ourselves and show the good parts of it, the conservation, the mentorship, the community, the... Um, the management skills, the way that we are in our communities and helping and volunteering, if we can show those good things, um, it's, I don't want to mess those up by five words. It's true. And it's, uh, it's amazing the power that each person holds at their fingertips without genuinely respecting or knowing it. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't, it doesn't take a million or 20 million Instagram followers to have the right or the wrong person, um, see your message. So being very poignant about what you want to deliver is, uh, is a good thing, I guess. Yeah, it is. We, we strive to have impact in our world, um, not just to inspire, but to encourage, um, I think that has been the goal of Guy with Western Contours and mine coming on to do these podcasts is to make a lasting impact by telling and highlighting other people's stories, um, especially for women, closing the gap between um, between women who might not have someone around them to mentor, closing that gap in a little bit closer um, yes. Giving somebody the, Hey, this person is, you can reach out, you can ask the questions, you can, uh, they're there to, to answer what they know and to find out the information that they don't know, um, and pass it on. Um, but it is impact and you have to be careful, very careful. Um, because a million good things that you say will be immediately forgotten by the one bad. It's true. Mm -hmm. It's that's a hard thing to to shoulder. Whether you have, like you said, thousands of followers or just a few. 
Um, that's kind of crazy. Okay. I, from, you have much more experience in hunting than I do. In fact, most of the women that I talk to (laughs) on here have much more experience than me. And so, um, I kind of like to hear from you guys. Are there, especially as a woman in this community, because a lot of what we face is male, Driven, And I'm not downing the male community in hunting at all, but all of us hunters have to adapt in certain ways to make things work for us. Um, Yes. And I feel like we as women have to be very adaptable and very flexible and make things work when they aren't necessarily built for us. Um, So do you have any tips or secrets or your favorite thing that you like to use or something that you have adapted in a way that has made it work that somebody else might not have seen yet? Um, Well, I'd say in terms of kind of a general tip and trick is don't, don't do what I did initially. And granted (laughs) um, there, there have been leaps and bounds of innovations and new female oriented um, and specific companies that have come out since I initially started, but don't get discouraged if you try one thing and it just doesn't work for you, whether that's Mm -hmm. a backpack or a specific layer of clothing. I remember almost having a meltdown because um, my entire hunting career up until my early twenties, I was hunting in just in cotton camo or, um, or uh, shirts that puff jackets or jackets that weren't camo. And mm-hmm. my uh, boyfriend at the time and my family pulled money together for me for Christmas to go buy a camo jacket. <laughs> and I was so excited about the opportunity to finally get a camo jacket that fit me, that was mine, that I got to pick the pattern on, that all of it. I was just so overwhelmed with excitement. And I went to one of the major brand stores to, to go try one on. And because they weren't quite catering towards women yet, there Mm. were very few women options and there were no size smalls. Yep. So I, (laughs) I almost cried when I got there having made this huge, uh, journey to the store specific to pick this up. It was a big deal for me and there was nothing there that fit me. Mm -hmm. And even though there's a lot more options today, a million options, it may take you a while to find what fits you. That's one of the most beautiful and one of the most frustrating things I think about being a woman is we are all shaped so differently. Yes, Uh, We all get warmer and or colder than other women. Like Mm -hmm. uh, our, our, heat regulation, what you plan on using the hunting gear for and our shape make it really challenging to find a performance piece that fits you. Agree. And uh, I, I'd say once you do find something that fits, if you like it and if you read the reviews and you find out that it's something that in terms of um, longevity seems to last a long time, maybe by two. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but just, just genuinely, I'd say don't don't do what I did and get, get discouraged because there's a lot of really great options out there. I mean, I've tried, I've tried pieces from 
Under Armour. Um, you obviously see a lot of the stuff that I wear now is Kuyu. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't make it women specific, but it turns out some of their the, some of the smallest stuff that they offer um, gen, generally ends up fitting me. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have a rain jacket that I'm about swimming in, but um, it's there's a there's a lot of different there's a lot of different stuff out there. I own I own Sitka Under Armour. Uh, I own Killick. I own Cabela's brand. I mm-hmm. own Realtree. I I own the 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 full gambit. And um, don't don't be afraid to to branch out and try that. And same thing goes with packs. My first pack that I ever purchased to to go into the backcountry with with was one of the early models of the Eberly stock that had the scabbard in it. Uh-huh. And it works okay for me to, to get up into the, the wilderness. But immediately when I loaded it down full of my, my first backcountry mule deer, I realized how severely um, misplaced the shoulder straps were for mm-hmm. females that have small that have narrower shoulders yeah and the fact that no matter if you cinched up the the chest strap to the very tightest i still had to hold my hands on my shoulders and pull in to get it so that i i wasn't being flexed back in my shoulders the the entire time that i was walking um so if it doesn't work don't and and it's a piece that you're planning on utilizing for a lot of stuff if it's causing you pain if it's not working don't suffer don't stick with it Mm -mm. find something else that's one of the beautiful things about hunting right now is there are just really neat cool innovations every single day there Um, are my other gear gear trip uh sorry no um, would be uh if you're hunting in a remote area i'm a huge proponent of the um, Garmin, or if you buy the older brand that, um, that does the same thing before Garmin bought them out, uh, Delormier, I mm-hmm. probably am pronouncing that wrong, but the inReach to me is an essential piece of equipment. Cause not only can I, can, can I communicate with my other friends that have those, but it's got the emergency button on it. You never know when something is going to go just catastrophically wrong. There's been ce- celebrity hunters in the recent past that have had to press those buttons. Mm-hmm. It's it's really important to have um, a way to get out and a backup plan for your backup plan. Working working in the medical field and the fire field, it it's neat how those things you think differently about things. You prepare differently for things. Uh, I used to work in cardiac surgery and the way that I pack to go camping, backpacking, whatever we're going to do is different than what my husband would pack. And it's just because my brain is wired for the worst case scenario. (laughs) And I'd rather pack for that and not have to use it than not pack for it and, and, uh, and be ill-prepared. It's good to have those people in the group. It's it really nice is. to have a nice <laughs> variety. I'm the worst case scenario person. Derek is the food obsessed person. My friend Jeff is the new gadget obsession person. Uh-huh. And I'm always having to take things out of his pack because I tell him ounces lead to pounds. Yes. Um, but we we complete each other quite nicely. <laughs> and you add a couple more of our folks from Team Awesome in there. And it's it's 
pretty fun, but you kind of have to have a variety. It's true. It takes a crew. Especially that food guy. Like, that's important. That's good. (laughs) That's a good person to have. (laughs) Those men thought that I was going to starve them. Um, Derek's first year into Idaho was the same year um, one of my friends from Oregon, his name's Storm. Um, It was his first year and Derek's first year. And they looked at what I packed for food and I account for calories and I account for all of the things that they could possibly want or need. We always come out with more food than, mm-hmm. than we used. We, we have excess always. Um, Storm was so worried about what I had packed. Derek had the good mind to complain to me that I didn't pack <laughs> enough, but then was assuaged by my assurance that we had enough food. Uh-huh. Um, Storm was so worried. He looked at what I packed that I had no idea. But before we got on the airplane, he stuffed his pockets full of summer sausages and pepperonis. (laughs) (laughs) He was a walking cured meat. He had so much cured meat on him. I bet he smelled so good. (laughs) (laughs) He did. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, I... uh... I second your thought process, especially on what to wear. Um, I think that we get stuck on name brands a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm a short girl. I'm 5'2", and finding things that fit lengthwise for my body, because I'm probably petite like you, um, it's it's difficult to find things to fit that don't necessarily rub in the wrong ways if you're going to be wearing a pack um, yes. because of extra material. Um, and I think that a lot of times the thought process behind women's camo or whatever outdoor outerwear that you're wearing, um, why do you need it to have a woman's fit? Well, that's one of the reasons. If you have extra material – Um, it's going to rub. It's going to create a really bad situation. Also, if you have too much material, you have air and, um, and then you freeze. So, um, the fit isn't just for look. I, I, I think that the prerogative that goes along with that is, well, they just want to look good. And I want to make sure that, you know, I do want to look nice. Um, I don't want things to not fit. I don't want things to be baggy, but there are reasons behind that. Yes. And you don't want to look like it's take your daughter or wife to hunting day. No, like if, I want my gear to fit me. Place, yeah. Yeah. And, and you should, if you're paying the money for it, it should yeah. fit correctly. And, and there is gear out there for you. There is. One of my big tri- tricks with that too, that I've learned even to this day for me, because it almost it almost doesn't matter what kind of pants I'm wearing under like a heavy load for a long distance. Mm-hmm. Um, I get pack rubs. So yep. I, I generally, I'm always wearing, um, thank goodness for this legging trend. Cause I yes. used to wear long underwear. I swear there were people that thought that they were in the twilight zone. Cause in the middle of the back country of Idaho, I'd summit this peak and run into another hunter in my long underwear and be like, hey, what direction are you going? I'm going a different direction. And they're like, did I just dream that? Or is there a woman walking around here in her underwear? Um, but but now that leggings are a thing, and mm-hmm. especially like performance layers, um, I always wear some of those, even if it's a hot day, under the, pant- the camo that I'm wearing. And if I get an animal, 
I, I don't want to get those all bloody anyway. So I take off uh, my camo pants and mm-hmm. I'll process the animal and hike out in those leggings because they don't rub. They're so nice. Yeah. And there's even some of the long underwear that I have worn in the past. After a couple of hours of wearing it, it becomes baggy and it becomes, yes. it, it starts rubbing. And so, um, no, I've, I am very grateful. I have a pair of leggings. I don't even know where I got them from, but they're, they're the nice slick material on the outside and then they're insulated on the inside. And perfect. it's perfect. I can't even remember where I got them from, but it is perfect for those cold because here in Tennessee, we sit. And mm-hmm. if you sit in 20 degree weather for a certain amount of time, you get cold. Um, yes. And so the layers are important. Um, but when you're packing stuff out, you get hot. And so it's nice to be able to shed layers. Um But yeah, I hear you on that. And I think that women need to understand that when they do buy something, don't be afraid to send it back. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we get excited. There's a whole lot lot of money spent and it's like, oh, I got the wrong size. I'm just going to make it work. Don't be afraid to send it back. Um, I agree. If it doesn't work, send it back. Get something else. Try a different size. Try something new. Um, Get what fits for you because that's going to make the difference of a good day and a bad day. Yeah, both in performance and how you you feel about it. If it's Mm -hmm. too baggy, if it's too tight, both of those things don't make you feel super great about yourself. And you're not going to be able to hike or sit or move the way that you want to move. So it's super important. I agree with you. We're on the same page. Yes. I mean, it doesn't have to be pink manufacturers. <laughs> it can right. just look like everybody else's camo. Um, yeah. Just make it fit us. That's, that's what we're asking for. That's what we're begging for. Um, just help it fit us. And I, I, I do. And like you said earlier, women are shaped so much differently from men, but also so much differently from each other. And so I have to, I have to feel sorry for the big manufacturers who are putting this out because it is hard to mass produce camouflage that will fit every single woman's body type. Um, It's impossible. It is impossible, but they can narrow it down a little bit better. And they have, a lot of companies have. Yes. Um, They're... But that's the thing too, is even if, even if you've exhausted, I know we all have, we all want to fly the flag of the camo that we think works best in the, the cover type that we're in or the kind that we think looks best or the kind that we're most familiar with, but branching out there to find something that genuinely fits you. If those folks don't have that is totally acceptable and totally cool and more important yeah yeah yes oh yeah um it's it's like you said it's it's almost an impossible task one of one again one of the things that i said one of the most beautiful and frustrating things about being a woman is that we are all just so different Mm -hmm. yep i agree i agree okay so tell me a little bit about what your goals are for this next year and we can talk like this is work and because you've got firefighting, you've got this new job that you've got, you've got um, Noah, you've got hunting. 
Like what are some of these goals this year? Gosh, well, in the most immediate future, I'm pretty excited because I'm finally getting to Washington's hunting season. So this weekend, I will be out and about running around the woods with my muzzleloader, trying to stalk the mighty unicorns of the woods. If you don't draw a tag in Washington, the general season in the area that I'm hunting is true spike. So it can't be a spike by two, can't have got to be got to be slick except for spikes so um hopefully one of our party will be um able to find one of those beautiful little unicorns mm-hmm. um so that's that's the first goal is to enjoy that time with my my parents and my buddy jeff and some of my parents friends will be out there doing that how long is that and season it is it's a, just a little under a week. Okay. Unfortunately, I have uh, three days to spend with folks. I'll be out Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Okay. Then I have to go back to my my duties of uh, performing some uh, fuels, hazard fuel reduction with yeah. my job. And then um, the next weekend is the general season for deer for modern firearm. And... Derek and Jeff and one of our other friends um, hikes into a pretty remote portion of the state to try to escape those other folks Mm -hmm. out there looking for the same creatures. And we'll be out there for five days, hoping to come across some of our beautiful mule deer friends. Yes. And then uh, we go to Idaho and my mom drew a special tag and the rest of us did not. So we're she'll be hunting in November and we're hunting in late October. Okay. And, um, because we wanted an additional challenge and torture, uh, (laughs) I talked it over with the group and they encouraged me to purchase a bull elk tag in the area. So I'm going to try to try to go after that, that same herd that ghosted me so hard last year. Oh, and man. my friend Jeff couldn't stand me doing it without him. So he pop, bought an elk tag too. <laughs> <laughs> that will be a great trip. Uh, I can't wait to follow you on that one. It will be fun. Every time in the woods is just so special. But that place in particular holds a really dear spot in my heart. We see just some of the most incredible animal behavior and wildlife in there when we go every single year, we're getting closer and closer to wolves every year. Um, one of the days that I tried to put a stock on elk last year in that same unit, um, we were about two hours too late. We were about two miles away from them when four wolves blew up the entire base and we had elk and deer running out of both sides and four, four wolves just hanging out in the center. Like they, uh, they meant to do that when it was pretty apparent that they didn't. And uh, completely opposite, different direction, different wolf pack, about 14 miles away. We got to watch them about a mile and a half away on an opposing ridge line. And there were six black ones filing and horse playing with each other right under a big old white one that just stood out as majestic as a wolf could possibly get skylined on the top of this rock watching them all. Wow. Now, will you take a wolf tag with you? Yes, they're for non-residents. They're thirty-two dollars, and 
I have, I've always had mixed feelings on it because I genuinely take pride in um, being able to consume the majority of what I harvest. Mm -hmm. Um, in that area in particular, though, especially with those two packs working the area, they don't really have, it's not a good argument in that specific area to talk about uh, population control for mule deer purposes, but yeah. the elk are absolutely getting torn up by those wolves yeah. and their behavior has been really interesting in the past. Um, it's almost like those wolves are trained to gunshots and you never see them. But when you leave the carcass for the night, after we've boned everything out and taken every usable part of that animal, if you come back the next morning, the only thing that's left at that spot is hair and rumen. The bones wow. are gone. The hide is gone. Everything is gone overnight. And so I'm sure that they've watched me uh, process many a deer there in Idaho and They've reduced the uh, out-of-state tag opportunities mm -hmm. in that area. And I worry because they don't have those free meals that they have in the past that that may put a little bit even additional pressure mm -hmm. on critters in that area. Um, so we do, we do have them um, for a multitude of reasons, but one of them is that over the course of us being in there, the elk population has taken a pretty significant dive there calves especially i don't think um are surviving quite as well right well um i'm excited for that anything with work coming gonna be exciting this year you just changed your job so i did just change my job <laughs> um it it offers me just a ton of latitude is the other nice thing about this job. As much as I am on district um, assisting in managing our prescribed fuels program, I get to go out. If As long as I'm ahead of schedule or on schedule with my work, I get to take the opportunity to go out on fire assignments and support large fires across the country. And even with this new job this year, I went up to Alaska for a tour as a task force trainee. So... I'm in charge of multiple resources on, well, I'm training to be in charge of multiple resources, engines, hand crews, that kind of stuff on large, larger fires. And, uh, I went down to Oregon as a helicopter crew member. So I get, I get a really fun variety in my work right now. And I'd say in terms of my career and personal development there, um, looking really forward to trying to take a few more assignments next year as a task force leader and become fully qualified in that. I'm a, I'm a couple assignments out at this point, but it's been really fun to utilize my background in hand crews and engines and helicopters to kind of move towards that next step in um, people management on those incidents. That's exciting. That's really exciting. It's, um, it's always good to have, it's hard when you plateau in a job. It's hard when you get to the highest that you can get. Um, it's always nice to have something to to strive for, um, to move toward and have those goals for. So that's really exciting um, for that new possibility. I, I really, like I said, I've really been, my supervisor that I have now, um, I've been really fortunate to have some very incredible supervisors over my career and um, the loyalty that I uh, have felt to my um, 
Rappel supervisor, my favorite, my favorite boss that I had ever had before that was my R- Rappel helicopter supervisor. And um, this person so far has been uh, rivaling rivaling him for, <laughs> for that spot. He's, he's really good at being able to, um, yeah, he's, he's got great personal skills and, um, I feel like I have a lot of latitude to try to help grow this program, but also really great mentorship while I'm doing it. So it's, it's been really, really awesome. And to continue to climb the, the ladder and fire, especially, um, especially because there are so few females that are with me there there are some and there are some awesome boss ladies some people that I'm really proud to know but being being of the the smaller demographic in fire it's always a source of pride to to continue to grow those skill sets and become really um, competent within those yeah and like you said at the beginning hey if anybody's out there interested in this they ask all the questions find out how to get involved in that if that's something that you have a desire to, to check out. Yes. In fact, seasonal hiring for next year is right now. They're mm-hmm. I, well, shoot. I'm not sure if it just closed. I will check on those deadlines, but it's, <laughs> it's surprisingly early how, how, um, how quickly you need to get your applications in for, for different regions. The, yep. the way that we do hiring right now is hopefully not the way we'll, we will do it in perpetuity, but it makes it really challenging for people thinking, Oh, summer's really far away. I don't have to apply for these positions yet, but truly all the training and all the training that has to go in to everything. And, um, you've got to be ready for that when it is time. So, yep. So if people want to want, uh, have any questions about preparation, uh, physically for how to become a firefighter, uh, class, class-wise or, or other requirements that uh, potentially different positions may hold, um, hiring deadlines, all of that kind of stuff, I'm, I'm in. I'm, I'm happy to get good people into that. And it's the same for, for hunting. If people have questions, um, aside from where do I hunt, those are, those are <laughs> questions that get, get little sideways mouth mm-hmm. answers like Buck Mountain or Four Point Ridge or <laughs> places like that. But genuinely um questions on how how to get involved how to get in how to find mentorship within the area that you're in um whether i can help if it if it's um a more local person i'm i'm definitely invested in in both of those um those life passions of mine so awesome awesome please reach out okay one last thing i wanted to ask you bucket list do you have <laughs> On your bucket list, something that you haven't been able to get yet that you really, really have a desire for? When I was growing up um, and until the last few years, I'd say going to New Zealand for a free range red stag was towards the top of my list. And it still is towards the top of my list. But after being fortunate enough to draw my once in a lifetime moose tag here in Washington, Mm -hmm. um, a handful of years back and getting to call that thing in off my own vocals and watch it sway and, and grunt and, um, the just spectacular memories that are associated with that. Um, I think even over that, um, being able to, uh, round out my moose species probably um, tops my list. So yeah. I got 
just that absolutely beautiful shyress. So I'd look look next if if and when I ever have the opportunity and or funds uh, for a Canada moose and an Alaskan moose. Yeah. It's kind of nice to have, I don't you hear and I've heard and I've seen like there's the groups that you can get all together in a year, especially. I, I'm amazed at the people that can do that um, and talk about the finances to be able to do that. But, yes. um, but in a lifetime, being able to round it out, that is, and I'm not talking about even completing a hunt um, with the final result, but just going through the actual stalking and getting them to respond. I, it, I can't even imagine because I've never done it, but the desire that I have to do that, um, is huge. They are so cool. And it is so comical that they come into that ridiculous noise. It just, (laughs) part of me is awestruck by it. And the other part of me just wants to to giggle. It's like, what on earth would be like, babe, that's a babe. (laughs) Just, oh, it's comical. I uh-huh. I loved every second of it and I cannot wait to hopefully do that again in, in, in my lifetime. That is awesome. Well, I can't wait to follow. I'll be definitely following through um, all of your seasons that are coming up, the spike season and especially your trying for the elk again. Um, and I'm sure everybody else is going to be interested in, is, at is, in it as well. Um and they can tell us how we can follow you, all of your ways. Um, mainly, I'm just on Instagram. Yep. Um, so on on Instagram, I'm She Hunts Washington. Um, generally, every season, I do a write up on my adventures with a with a written write up of my stories and um, photos of of that journey mm-hmm. on a forum called hunting Washington, which I'm a moderator on. Um, and usually that link, um, the most recent one, which I think on my Instagram right now, it's still my, my story from last year. Cause I haven't gotten out to, to be able to refresh some of those new stories this mm-hmm. year. Um, but generally on my Instagram, that's, that's the easiest way to kind of gather, um, the larger picture of what, what I've been up to for the season. Yeah. It was very simple. I just went to your Instagram and hit that link and I was able to read your story about, about that hunt. So, um, well, thank you. Hey, Carrie, thank you so much. I appreciate this conversation. (laughs) It's been so much fun and I appreciate it. And I, um, I appreciate you staying up late and chatting with me. I know, um, trying to mix our schedules is, uh, um, has been challenging, especially with you being so busy. So I really appreciate your time. No, this is, this is definitely worth it. And I've loved every conversation and this one has, has been the same way. It's been just a lot of fun to hear, um, who you are, what you do, the many hats that you wear, but also the desire that you have to have an impact in our community, um, the mentorship that you want, not just for hunting, but, um, for what you do. And it just shows, it's nice to be able to highlight the passion that you have on all of these accounts. Um, so it has been a joy to be able to talk to you tonight. Thanks, Amy. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. It's been fun. Yes. I'm excited to see how your hunting season goes and, um, keep in touch with you. This has been a ton of fun. Yes. And like you said, there's not many women that do this. So it's really nice to, 
um, to connect. So I've appreciated you reaching out. You are very welcome. All right. Catch up with Carrie on Instagram at she hunts Washington. Thank you for listening. Follow and tag us on Instagram at Western Contours. Jump on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down. Hey, everyone. This is Andrew with Sasquatch Fuel. If you're heading into the backcountry this season and you need some meals that don't bog you down, check out sasquatchfuel.com. Our 100% compostable packaging was designed to combat litter in the backcountry. For more information on conservation in action, head to sasquatchfuel.com. Hey guys, enter code Western Contours at checkout and save a few bucks off your order.